Hey, if you're a college student and uh, want to be involved in church planning, uh, go talk to Mike and Robin afterwards. They have a table, or if you simply want to know more about their ministry. But they're, the church that they're going to be involved in planting is near a college campus, and uh, they're looking for those who might serve. And um, I'm not sure Mike wanted me to make that general of an, an opportunity, but um, uh, we'll, I'll let him give you the bad news if he doesn't want you to be there. Um, we're going to extend the offer widely and let him tighten it. Um, it's, it's, yeah, I, I heard this week really encouraging news about um, three of our college students who've committed to spending at least a year overseas after they graduate. Would love to hear more. Had a, had, um, a college student in our church recently who, when I said a couple weeks ago, that if you don't know what you're going to do after you graduate or don't know what you're going to do this summer, said, I don't know what I'm going to do, and so quickly said, I want to go on the Latvia trip. Now, I don't know if they're actually, I think they were too late, but man, I'm, I'm excited by the responsiveness in the hearts of those who would love to go serve the Lord overseas. All right, Mark chapter 14, as we continue to look at the passion of Jesus Christ and move towards the final days of his ministry and life, as we look towards Easter here coming up, we are moving, this is a very short and brief series we looked at the betrayal of Jesus last week. We looked at Jesus in the garden and the agony of Jesus' sufferings there both him and the Father. And this week we come to the trial of Jesus, the trial of Jesus. And we're going to pick up in Mark chapter 14, verses 53. I'm going to read through verse 65 and then jump over into chapter 15 and read through verse 15 there. Follow along in your own Bible as I read out loud. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another, not made with hands. That even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst, in the midst and asked Jesus, have you, not, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am, which is a loaded term in the Bible. I am, and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest then tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Then drop down to chapter 15 in your Bibles, Mark chapter 15, verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered them to him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer. So that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. 
And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? But they just shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. This ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but then may the word of our God stand forever. Well, there are some trials that change the course of history. And in fact, there are some trials that mean more than simply the trial itself. More is at stake than simply justice in uh, discipline or consequences for criminal acts for the singular individual who committed him. If you think about O.J. Simpson, the last couple of years, there's been a number of trials that have been very, or videos and documentaries that have been very significant about how that trial was more than simply about whether this was just a man who killed his wife and her lover. It was something greater than that. There were cultural implications going on in that trial. There was an enormous trial in the late 19th century in our country that came to be known as the Scope Monkey Trials. It was a a trial about one particular teacher that taught evolution as a theory in his science class. And William James Bryant, and the prosecutor in this area, took him to court and sought to bring, prosecute him for teaching this illegal, essentially illegal teaching in the schools. But there was an entirely other trial going on in the Scopes Monkey Trials, wasn't there? There was a cultural divide going on. It was a question of, will we continue to go down a path of teaching that there is a one who has created the world with a creative design, or are we going to be moving towards a direction of teaching evolution in our schools? There was essentially two trials going on. And while the teacher lost the trial, it was clear coming out of the trial that the case for evolution won out the day. There was two trials There's two trials. Well, today we come and look at a trial that has far more reaching implications than simply as it appears on the surface. And there's more than one trial going on here. Yes, there is the trial of Jesus, but it has implications that go beyond merely the cultural implications of the day in the Jewish setting of that day, but it has implications for the rest of eternity. And indeed, not only is Jesus on trial in this passage, but you and I are on trial. There is a second trial. It's yours and it's mine. We're going to walk through this text, and it's rather lengthy in very general terms because there's so much going on here. We can't necessarily dive into the weeds with great detail in order to cover it all, but I want to cover just three particular general areas that often happen in a trial that we see happen here in this text as Jesus is put on trial. And the first is this. First, we see testimony, don't we? Testimony. In the trial of Jesus, we see the testimony, and what we see here in the very beginning is the testimony both against Jesus and then the testimony of Jesus. There is, there is those who are seeking to testify against Jesus, but as it says at the beginning of the text, they can't find anybody who can agree with one another. 
There is false testimony and there's uh, disregarding testimonies. There are testimonies that disagree with one another. And so finally, the the chief priest, in bringing Jesus before the Sanhedrin, this, this group of 71 men in Israel, made up of Pharisees and Sadducees, the different political lines in Israel, made up of prominent lay people and scribes and teachers of the law, And they sit in the semicircle and they put Jesus in the middle of it and they sit him in the judgment seat and they ask Jesus this question. They ask him to incriminate himself. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? In other words, it's saying, are you the Christ, the son of God, the son of the sent by God to this world? And what we see in the midst of this trial is there are all sorts of injustices, including this call to incriminate himself. And yet Jesus, while he has remained silent in the face of all the other accusations, to this question, he finally speaks up. And he gives his own testimony. And his testimony is in short this. I am the judge here. You may have me in the judgment seat. You may be the counsel that thinks that you are in charge. But ultimately, I am the judge here. Jesus, they ask him the question, are you the Christ? And he gives them far more than they bargained for. Jesus' response is astonishing, but it doesn't strike our ears as astonishing. Jesus quotes for them from Daniel chapter 7. Jesus says, I am the Christ. I am the Christ, the Messiah, which they thought of in terms of of a military uh, political rule. But then he also goes on and says this, I am also, I am the son of man. Now, often when, when this is a term from Daniel chapter 7, now when we, I was a kid, I used to think of the Son of Man as simply referring to Jesus' humanity, right? That when Jesus is referred to as the Son of God, that refers to his deity. And when he's referred to as the Son of Man, that refers to his humanity. Yea, it's great Christology, right? Jesus is fully God and fully man, but that's not actually what the Son of Man term means. And Daniel chapter 7, which is what Jesus is quoting here, is a reference to, it says, that there is one like a son of man who is coming. And it says that this son of man will be given dominion and a kingdom, and all the nations of the earth will serve him, and that he will sit at the right hand of God on high and will rule in heaven with God the Father. In other words, for Jesus to say, I am the Christ, I'm the one to come save Israel, but then to say, I am the Son of Man, he is doing nothing less than proclaiming to be the Son of God, to being deity himself who reigns and rules over all the earth. Jesus is saying, that is me. I am the one who has authority to sit and rule in judgment and dominion over all people, including all of you sitting in a semicircle today. And it's at this It's at this that they lose their minds, don't they? What is it immediately that happens? And you can begin to see it rather rapidly how quickly and how explosive it is that Jesus is claiming here. They literally rip their garments. They say he has blasphemed. He has claimed to be God. This is nothing short than a claim of deity that Jesus is giving here. You see, Jesus says, I am the judge. You think you're judging me. You think you're judging me, and my life may hang in the balance by your judgment, but ultimately one day, your eternal life will hang in the balance of my judgments. Your life is in my hands. You think my life is in your hands, your life is in my hands. And so Jesus sits there being beaten, spit upon, cursed by the most powerful political body in Israel, and he says to them, bring it on. I am the judge here. I am the one who ultimately will lay down the verdict. Now, here's the question. 
Well, there is a testimony that Jesus says about himself. The testimony in this court of law is Jesus says, I am the son of man. I am the son of God. I am deity. I am the king. I am the judge. I am the one ultimately to whom you will have to answer. What is the testimony of the world? What is your testimony? The testimony of the world is like the testimony of the Sanhedrin. It is false. Not only is their testimony about him false, but their whole presupposition that they can stand before Jesus in judgment is false. Our application of this is like this. We think we can determine who Jesus is in our lives. Do you understand that? We think that we can come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I simply want you to be a good moral teacher for me. I simply want you to be a great example to me. And Jesus says, not so much. That is not enough for me. I am not just a moral teacher. I'm not such a great example. I am actually the son of God. I am the judge and I am the king of your life. And when we come to him, and yet we come in judgment and say, I will determine what I will and will not obey. I will determine what I, when I will or will not follow you. We, I will sit on the throne of ultimate judgment over you, Jesus, and I will determine whether I follow you, no matter whether you say you're king or not. Jesus shows up and claims to be the ruler of the world, and indeed, here's what he, to bring it more specifically, he claims to be the ruler and judge of your life. Your life. Jesus doesn't stand and have to answer to you, ultimately. You have to stand before him and answer to him. And yet, this is the goal of mankind, isn't it? that we would present ourselves to be judge over mankind, to be judge over Jesus, the sheer arrogance of forgetting our place. That people will say, just think about the commands of Jesus, to love one another, to support one another, to encourage one another, and yet what are the, just, let's take the idea of being involved in the church. He says you are to remain, do not give up meeting with one another day in and day out, week in and week out, and we'll say, you know what, the bride of Christ, I can take or leave that. Because why? Because I'm, I'm the ruler of my life. I'm the ruler of my life. I will be the judge of whether I will be devoted to God's people. God doesn't get to tell me what to do. Jesus doesn't get to tell me what to do. Who appointed you to be judge, Jesus, to decide what I do with my life? There are thousands of examples. Jesus, you don't get to decide what I do with my sexuality. You don't get to decide who I date. You don't get to decide how I dress. You don't get to decide what kind of job I have. No, I am the ultimate. I am autonomous. And where I need you for some help, I'll call you in. But until then, I'll remain in charge. I will be the judge of what is right and wrong for me. Is that the testimony of your life? You see, the testimony, you only begin the testimony that, to testify that Jesus is actually the ultimate king and judge in your life when he disagrees with you. And you say, okay, big fella, you win. You win. So who are you, they ask. Jesus' testimony in the court of law, the testimony of Jesus is this, I am the judge. I am the judge here. Why? Why does he use that particular metaphor? I mean, Jesus uses a lot of metaphors in the scriptures. Why does he use this particular metaphor? Well, it's to create a paradox in the moment, isn't it? It is quite the paradox. Here it is that Jesus, by human beings, is being judged by them. He is the judge of all the earth, who is not judging the earth in this moment, but instead is being judged by weak, spineless little men who will spit and hit upon him. 
He should be the judge and we should be the ones on trial. And yet the paradox of the passion of Jesus Christ is that he would submit himself to the the cruelty of human judges. He is the one on trial. But, But he speaks loudly. Oh yes, in this moment I'll let you judge me. But make no bones about it. My testimony here is I am the king. I am the judge. The second thing I want you to see in this court of law is this, is the evidence. Is the evidence about Jesus. The evidence about Jesus. They need, what goes on in the rest of the story is Jesus is before the high priest and before the Sanhedrin. They clearly condemn him. They said, this man deserves to be put to death. The problem is, is the Israelites, because they're under Roman rule, they do not have the right for capital punishment. And so they have to send him to Pilate to substantiate their charges. Now, they go to Pilate and they recognize rather shrewdly that Pilate really doesn't care whether people claim to be divine. He doesn't care about Daniel chapter 7. He doesn't care about blasphemy. And so when they take Jesus to Pilate, they switch the charges up. They go to Pilate and they say, he claims to be the king of the Jews. He claims that people shouldn't pay taxes. He claims that he's going to destroy the temple and rebuild it. He claims that he's going to build a kingdom in this place. Now, this would be rather upsetting for Pilate. You see, Pilate's job is to keep the peace. Pilate's job is to make sure the taxes are paid. Pilate's job is to make sure no one overcomes Caesar from this little backwoods uh, province. And so Pilate comes to him and he asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king? Are you the king? And Jesus stands before him, and if he's not silent for but a moment, he simply refers to him and gives him very opaque answers in response. You say so, whatever you say, big fella. Jesus said, once again, whatever you say, Mr. Governor, the person who thinks he's in charge here, Pilate, but what we begin to see over the course of the next couple of passages, and what happens is, is Jesus is put before not one, not two, but at least three courts of law. And all of them, all of them cannot condemn him rightly. He is innocent before the Sanhedrin, although they will claim that he blasphemes. He is innocent before Pilate. Pilate says, I can see no evil in this man. Pilate's going to then send him off to Herod, who is the kind of like puppet king of Israel. Herod sees him. Herod spends some time with him. And he simply decides that this man is either crazy or something who is worth derision. He doesn't see anything wrong with him. And in fact, Pilate says this to the Jews. He calls all the leaders back to him after assessing this Jesus. And he says this in Luke chapter 23, verses 13 through 15. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And yet after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. In other words, here's what I want you to see in the evidence. The evidence claims that Jesus is innocent of all charges. He is innocent. He is found innocent by Pilate. He is found innocent by Herod. And by the way, Pilate and Herod are not our arbiters of great justice. They are somebody who, if they smell a rat, if they sense anybody who might be a problem or a threat to them, they're going to put them down rather rapidly. Pilate is somebody who does not exactly find innocent people around every corner. Pilate is the one who is, he, he loves to actually put people to death in Israel. He's happy to do whatever they want him to do, but here he calls this man innocence. Pilate was loathed by the Jews for his cruelty, for his injustices, for his love of putting people to death and putting them on crosses. 
Herod Antipas, who is the Herod who is mentioned here, is the son of Herod the Great. Now this guy, oh man, this guy comes quite from quite the genealogy. His father is Herod the Great, who if you remember Herod the Great, he slaughtered all the three children under three, the age of three years old in Judea because he thought that there might be this king of the Jews who was born and would be a threat to his throne. And Herod Antipas doesn't fall far from the apple tree. He has John the Baptist beheaded simply because his daughter-in-law had a great dance in front of him. Pilate and Herod have no qualms about killing people. If someone has the slightest smell of lacking innocence, they have no problem with unjust trials and executions. This is something they frankly enjoy. In other words, what the passage is saying this, is you could be a dumb, blind mule and see that Jesus is innocent. That there is nothing wrong with this man. In fact, in Mark chapter 15, verse 14, when the crowd is shouting for Jesus to be crucified, what does Pilate say to them? He says, why? Why? What evil has he done? And here we are introduced and we are brought into the larger evidence of Scripture about this Jesus. You see, not only does Jesus show up and testify that he says that I am the judge, but the testimony of all of Scripture, even those of the evil kings and governors around him, is this, is that Jesus is an innocent, righteous man. He is perfect. And guess what? This is something that we have been needing for a very long time in the world. That we've been needing one who would be righteous, who would come into this world and be righteous and lead us and guide us. In fact, there is a place in the Old Testament, you may remember this, where Abraham is, God is showing Abraham Sodom and Gomorrah. And God says, I'm going to put Sodom and Gomorrah to the sword. I'm going to slaughter every person here. And Abraham goes, you know what? Actually, if I could, um, if I could um, provide some, 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 if I could, um, what am I looking for? If I could testify for Sodom and Gomorrah on their behalf, if I could plead for mercy for them, if you would just find a hundred godly men in that city, would you, would you have mercy? God says, yeah. If you find a hundred, I'll, I'll be merciful. And then Abraham goes, what about 50? What about 40? What about 20? What about 10? And God goes, if there, is a, if there are 10, 10 godly men in that city, then I'll spare it. And Abraham eventually, he just walks away God goes and he destroys the city. And you're left wondering in the passage, you're going to Abraham, Abraham, I think you stopped short. What if there was one righteous man in the city? And the answer is, there is no righteous man in the city. And Abraham knew it. There is no righteous man in this world. It's actually what Romans chapter 3 says. There is none righteous, not even one. And yet, God sends now one righteous man. One righteous man that if this man might represent us, we might be spared. He is innocent. He is righteous. There is no evil and there is no wickedness in him. That is what the evidence says. He is perfectly righteous, perfectly obedient, not simply in the eyes of Pilate and Herod, but in the eyes of God himself. Well, who are we? What is the evidence about all of the people around, around Jesus in this? The evidence speaks to, Jesus being, speaks to Jesus being innocent. The evidence, though, for us, if we were to see ourselves in this text, is what? We are far from innocence. In fact, the proclamation in this trial, in the second trial, the greater trial that is going on is this, is that we are indeed are guilty. There is a question that people have asked. It's somewhat of a philosophical question when they've looked at these texts about Jesus' arrest and his trial and his crucifixion, and they've asked this question, who is responsible for the death of Jesus? Who is responsible? Was it the Romans? 
I mean, it was ultimately Roman guards who nail his hands and his feet to the cross. Was it Pilate? I mean, he was the ultimate governing authority who oversaw this. Was it the disciples? I mean, they deserted him. Shouldn't they have fought for him? Shouldn't they have tried to do something to save him? Was it the Jewish leadership? They're the ones who frame him. Was it the crowd of the one who cry, crucify him? But the reality of the teachings of the scripture is this, is that Jesus goes to a cross and Jesus is declared guilty even though he is innocent because he was taking the sins of you and me. In other words, we are responsible. It was not the Jews, so the Jewish leaders, or Pilate, or the Romans. The statement here and the arrest and trial of Jesus is that we are the guilty ones. We said this a number of weeks ago. We know we can hate God. We know we hate God and the deep, the deep sin in our heart against God because the one time that we could get our hands on God, what did we do with him as humanity? We put him to death. We put him to death. And it is our sin that put him there on that cross. It is as if you were there shouting for Barabbas. It is as if you were there saying, crucify him, crucify him. In fact, this is how Peter preaches in the most unseeker-friendly sermon of all time in Acts chapter, 22, Acts chapter 2, verse 23. He says this, This Jesus, delivered up according to the plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified, you killed by the hands of lawless men. Martin Luther put it this way. He said this, that we as the ones who are responsible ultimately because of our sin for the death of Jesus, that he said that we do this, that we all carry around the nails of the cross in our pockets. And that every sin that we commit is us pulling a nail out of that pocket. We nailed him to the tree. We are the guilty ones. We are the ones who sentenced the innocent one to death. It's clear, it's obvious, even Pilate is fighting for him, saying he is innocent, and yet we join the, join the crowd and say, crucify him. The guilt that we have, have in this world because of our sin against God, we have heaped upon it the worst of sins by then putting to death the innocent one. See if I can illustrate this further to bring it home. There was a play written right after World War II, and it was written in Germany, it was called The Sign of Jonah. And right after World War II, you can imagine if you were part of the German people, the, the utter, dis, the, just how you're supposed to think about yourself. How you're supposed to think about yourself as a, as a human being, about your nation, about all that it, it went on in your society. It was a society in utter, absolute existential crisis. And they're, they're in the play, they're asking this question, who should go on trial for the Holocaust? Somebody needs to go on trial for this. Somebody must be held responsible. And you know what happens in the play? What we have is they bring various people before the trial. And they, 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 the common people, and they say, you should be on trial for what happened. And the common people say, no, 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 it's not us. It was the soldiers. The soldiers did this. You have to hold the soldiers responsible. And so they, they bring the soldiers in. They say to the soldiers, you are the ones who are responsible for the Holocaust. And the soldiers say, no, 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 no. You can't hold us responsible. We were merely taking orders from those above us. And so they go to the people above them, the people in the government, governing authority, and they say to the people, you need to come on trial. And those people say, oh, no, 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 it wasn't us. We shouldn't go on trial. It's the people above us. And it went up and up and up the chains. So everybody gets out of what they deserve by pointing up the chain. Finally, finally, everyone decides that no one should go on trial for this. And they, they say, here's how we can get out of this. Let's blame God for the Holocaust. He could have stopped it. 
He let it happen. He created a world in which this happened. And so in the trial, in the sign of Jonah, at the very end of the play, they convict God for the Holocaust. They said he, they put him on trial. They put him on the stand and they sentenced him to death. They say, let him, and here's what his sentence is to God. Let him, one, become a human being. Let him wander on the earth and become homeless and hungry and thirsty. Let him be a Jew and let him die. And when he dies, let him be disgraced and ridiculed. See, they did the atrocities. They're the guilty ones. And yet they're saying, God, we want to hold you responsible. You are responsible. We'll blame God. Who put Jesus on the cross? We did. Sinners did. Sinners chanted for the innocent one to be executed for their sins. We did. We are the guilty ones. The guilty, in other words, in this text, judge the innocent for their crimes for their sins. And indeed, this has actually been taken up in all the beauty of hymnody throughout the ages of, of Christian history. This has been taken up in beautiful places. Horatius Bonar said this in his hymn, and the words may be up on the screen for you. He said this, "'Twas I that shed the sacred blood. I nailed him to the tree. I crucified the Christ of God. I joined the mockery. He goes on, of that shouting multitude, I feel that I am one. And in that din of voices rude, I recognize my own. Around young cross, the throng I see. I see mocking the sufferings groan. Yet still my voice, it seems to be as if I mocked alone. Ed quoted it earlier, how deep the father's love for us. So there's a line in there that maybe says it even more simply, not the old English. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out amongst the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there. You pull the nail from the pocket. The evidence was he was innocent and that you were guilty. And so did we do. We put the innocent one on a cross. Third aspect of the trial. The sentence. The sentence. What's the sentence for Jesus? Jesus is innocent. Jesus is the judge, and yet what we see here is the innocent judge is condemned. Pilate is backed into a corner. He wants to let Jesus go. He sees him as an innocent man. He sees through the deviousness of the Jewish leaders. Pilate doesn't like the Jewish leaders. He doesn't like these guys. He doesn't want to, but here what we see is Pilate looks at the tradition. He says, how about this? I can get Jesus out in this way. We'll do some little political moving, some, some you know, backwards movement here. He says this, I'm going to release one prisoner during the Passover feast. This is something I used to do for you guys. You remember that cool tradition? I'm going to release somebody. And so he, he looks and he looks around his jail and he says, who would they absolute, who's the worst? Who, who, they, who, they, who must they release? Who must they say, we, that guy is dead. Jesus, we have to release. This guy is just too awful. We can't have him released and running around in society. He goes, okay, let's find the pedophile. Let's find the murderer. Someone is so foul that they'll have to, they'll be forced to choose Jesus. And so what does he look? He looks around the jail and he chooses one named Barabbas. Now, Barabbas has an interesting name. You know what Barabbas' name is? Actually, in the full, in the Greek, it's Jesus Barabbas. And Barabbas means son of the father. Jesus, son of the father. Now it's interesting. What we have here is Pilate is saying, let me ask you this. 
Do you want Barabbas the insurrectionist, Barabbas the murderer, Barabbas the traitor? Do you want him or do you want Jesus, the king of the Jews? Which Jesus will you choose, the guilty one or the innocent one? The murderer or the one who heals the broken? And what we see here is there is an exchange going on. What, he puts before them Jesus or Ted Bundy, and who do they choose? Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy. The testimony is that Jesus is the judge. Jesus is the innocent one who is perfectly righteous. And yet in the passion of the Christ, Jesus allows himself, despite being the judge of this world, despite being perfectly righteous, the innocent one, one of all accusation against him, he allows himself to be substituted for who? the lowest of the low, a criminal, a murderer. What we see here is God is put on trial and God is declared guilty and condemned in the place of the one who is truly guilty. You know, there's a place in the Bible, another place in the Bible where God is put on trial. In Exodus chapter 17, if you want to turn there, you can, you can kind of, over, I'll give you kind of an overview of what's going on here. In Exodus chapter 17, uh, God has brought the people of Israel out of Egypt just a few chapters before, and he has provided for them food and, and manna and, and taken them to various springs of water. And yet the trip out of slavery is not exactly what the people of Israel had hoped. They're hot and they're thirsty and they're having to walk in lot and there's but and, and so it sounds kind of like Disney World. So they're, they're having to wander around and wait in long lines and there's but they're going to they're going to the, they're asking the question where's the land of milk and honey? We've been we've been, we're hot and thirsty and hungry. And so what do they begin to say in the most hyperbolic, ridiculous temper tantrum perhaps the world has ever known? They look at God and they shake their fists at him and they said we were better off in Egypt. We had garlic cloves in Egypt. We had meat on hooks in Egypt. We were at the melting pot in Egypt. And yet you've dragged us out here, and what do they say? You've dragged us out here to kill us. What are they doing? They're putting God on trial. In fact, here's how God responds. God goes to Moses and he says this. Tell everybody to gather at the rock. Apparently they were near a really big rock. And he says, gather at the rock. Oh, and Moses Bring the rod. Now, let me ask you, kids. If dad says to go to my room and you hear a drawer in the kitchen open and then shut and you hear footsteps moving towards you and dad walks in with a spatula, what do you know is about to happen? When God tells Moses in Exodus 17 to get the rod, Moses is going, it's going down. This is going to be bad, right? Because the rod, what's the rod? The rod is what Moses took to before Pharaoh and said, and God said, you throw the rod down and what happens? The Nile has turned to blood. Moses, you throw the rod down and what happens? Plagues of cursing after, after one after another come upon Israel. And then he throws the rod down and what happens? An angel of death comes. It is the rod of God's discipline. And God says, hey, everybody, come gather around me at the rock, Come gather and you expect what's going to happen. God's going to destroy. He's going to smite the people of Israel for his wrath, for what they have done, for the guilty people putting their fingers at God and saying, you are guilty. We're the innocent ones. You're guilty. You want to kill us. Instead, what does God have Moses do? Everybody gather around. He says, Moses, strike the rock. Strike the rock. What is he saying? They deserve to be struck, 
but the rock will be struck instead. And out of that rock will come a well of water that will feed and quench the thirst of millions of souls. Now that sounds familiar, right? Jesus says, I am the water of life. Jesus is the one. He is the rock who is smitten. Out of him comes living water. We'll see when he is actually executed on the cross that they're going to pierce his side. And what will come flowing out of Jesus' side? Water. Who has ever heard of a God who suffers? Who has ever heard of a God who enters a world and is smite, smitten for the, his people? Who has ever heard of a God who's willing to be judged by his servants. It is unfathomable. In fact, all the other religions of the world look at this. The Muslims look at this and they said, this is blasphemy. And it would be blasphemous. Except for the fact that it happened. Except for the fact it's what God ordained. And so here's the truth. The sentence in this text and what this is saying is that it is condemning God. It is condemning Jesus. It's saying, Jesus, you are condemned to death. But what does it say about us in our trial? We are free. Jesus is condemned and we are free. Just imagine, put yourself in the, foot, in the boots of Barabbas. You know, there were three crosses already made. Why? Because it was Barabbas' execution day. But the crowd says, put Barabbas up on the cross. But not that Barabbas. We want that other one. Jesus, the king of the Jews. Can you imagine being in Barabbas in his jail cell? It's probably under Pilate's palace and begins to hear the stamping and the shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And he hears the footsteps of guards coming towards him and roughly grab him out of the jail. And he is thinking, this is it. I'm on my way to my execution. So long, boys. I've said my last words. And yet they come out, they bring him out to the gate, and they say, you are free to go. Can you imagine? Can you put yourselves... Yourself in the foot of Barabbas? Well, you better if you're a Christian, because that's you. In which all your sins, you were being, God should have executed us. He should have brought his wrath to bear upon us. We should be dead, and yet God receives the, Jesus receives the wrath of God instead. The innocent died, and the guilty one is set free. What is going on here? Jesus is condemned, and we are declared free and right What's happening? This is called substitution. Substitution. There was a man named Ernest Gordon who was a British World War II airman. And in the course of his various flights, he was ultimately shot down over Burma and was taken to a prison camp, a Japanese prison camp that was comprised mostly of Australians and British soldiers. And these soldiers were tasked with building a a railroad through the jungle. It was a horrific existence. Many of them, day in and day out, died from various diseases. They were literally being worked to death. They would steal food from each other. They were constantly willing to backstab each other. It was a dog-eat-dog -dog world where they were trying to scrape out a misly existence and merely get through the war until one day this happened. If they came back after doing their day of work out on the, to building the railroad and they were bringing back their pickaxes and their shovels and they brought back their shovels and they realized that this particular work gang that there was only nine of the ten shovels left. 
And the Japanese soldiers were going crazy and they were very agitated about this. Where is this other shovel? And they dragged 10 of the prisoners out and they said, we're gonna shoot and execute every one of you if someone does not step forward and admit to stealing the shovel. No one steps forward. And so they pulled them out and they put them up in the firing range and finally one of the 10 men in the firing range steps up and says, it was me, I stole the shovel. So the Japanese soldiers took him aside in front of all the other soldiers, took the leftover shoulders and beat him to death with the shovels. It was found just a shortly little bit a while after that that the 10th shovel was found. It had never been lost. It had never been stolen. What happened? One soldier said, I will substitute myself for everybody else. If I don't step forward and die on their behalf, then we will all die. And so what does God the Father do? God sends Jesus and he says, I will step forward so that you and I don't have to die. He was our substitute. One man became the substitute for the world. Has that changed you? Has that truth driven into your heart, into your mind? If you believe that Jesus is the judge who came to earth and instead of smiting us, he went to the cross and took our judgment day, then it will change your life. Let me end with this application. Here's, for example, how it might change your life. It will mean this, that the world's judgment over you no matter who it's from, it doesn't matter anymore. The only person who has the right to sit in judgment over you and to smack you around is Jesus Christ. And he said, I will not condemn you. Instead, I will stand in your place. And therefore, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Here we're coming full circle. Paul says, I care very little if you judge me. I don't care at all because I have come to understand this, that Jesus has testified that he is the judge, and yet he as the judge has said, I will stand in your place. And so therefore, if you think I'm awful, if you think awful things about me, it does not matter because God has spoken his words of affirmation over me. And in fact, what does Paul say? He doesn't simply just say, it doesn't matter what you say. He also says, it doesn't even matter what I say. Now, for some of you, this is really important because the joy of your Christian life, the pattern, the greatest discipline of your Christian life is beating yourself up. It's thinking and belittling yourself. And yet Paul says, I don't even care what I think. Here's the truth and the reality of this day, of this passage, is this, is that in a sense, your judgment day has already happened. That when they said, crucify him, crucify him, that was for you, and Jesus stepped up and took your place. Therefore, you no longer have to beat yourself up, for there is therefore no condemnation for you. But yet some of you keep putting yourself back in the judgment seat. And it's just wringing the joy and the love out of your Christian life. You're looking down at yourself each and every day. Your devotion time is a time to actually look at yourself and talk about how awful you are and to beat up yourself. Now listen, there is conviction of the Holy Spirit that the conviction of the Holy Spirit leads you to the mercy seats. The conviction of the devil leads you to what? Dismay and shame. And so here's the question. 
For those of you that are every each and every day walking through your life and putting yourself back into the judgment seat, I ask you this, who made you judge? God the judge came to earth and he says, I am the judge, I am the king over your life, and I have spoken over you my acceptance, my forgiveness. The verdict is in, you're forgiven. There is no condemnation for you. Let's end with this story. Becky Pipper, who's a woman that wrote a book on evangelism a number of years ago, and she was speaking at a conference, and she gave this account of a woman coming up to her after the conference who was in, in tears, in fact, so tearful, so dismayed, so distraught, that it was one of those, in order to not distract everybody else at the conference, she had to pull her into a side room and this woman in the midst of tears and in agony, essentially a grief that, the, that Becky could hardly understand the words were coming out of her mouth, talks about her family and talks about her three to four kids, but says that she, her life is, is joyless, that she is full of shame and guilt. Because she talked, and she talked about her past and the scene from her life, from when she was in her late teens and early part of her college years, she and her boyfriend at the time were the Ken and Barbie of the church youth group. They were the kids that everybody else wanted to be. They were beautiful. They were smart. They followed Jesus. And they were the leaders in the youth group. Everybody looked up to them. All the parents in the church said, you can, the kids, you can hang out with Ken and Barbie. They're great. They get engaged. They're moving towards marriage. Her, her, her fiance gets hired as a youth pastor in a church. They're working in ministry. And yet, in the midst of their engagement, they sexually stumble. And she gets pregnant. And the weight of the thought of everyone thinking less of them, and him possibly losing his job as a youth pastor, and him and being stripped of maybe those who love them and how people thought so highly of them, they decided that they would make the most horrific of decisions and they ended their pregnancy with an abortion. And the woman in the midst of her grief is telling Becky Pippert this story and she said, and then she particularly accounted how she felt about herself on her wedding day just a few months later after this abortion. And she said, as I was dressed in white and everyone in the church, as I walked down the aisle and everyone looked at me and they were beaming at me as if I was this, this, this picture of innocence and righteousness, not knowing that I was a murderer. And she's wailing in her grief and Becky Pippert is holding on to her, and she said, she believes it was of the Spirit that Becky Pipper had these words come to her, words that she said she didn't normally have the courage to say. And she looked at her and she said this, it wasn't your first murder, you know. It wasn't your first murder. You see, you participated in the killing of the most innocent one that ever lived in the world. And with this, the woman suddenly stopped short in her tears and her grief, and she looked up, and she said, that is amazing, that if God would forgive me my part in the execution of his son, how much more would he forgive me this? Understand this, Jesus stood silent and innocent before the judgment and the condemnation of the world so that you would have someone every single day when the call of conviction of the things done in the past, the things done today, and the fear of the things done tomorrow, that Jesus will speak loudly at your judgment day and say there is no condemnation for her. There is no condemnation for him. 
I have taken their judgments. Let's pray. Those who are serving in the Lord's Supper, if you would head this direction. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a merciful God. And that you looked at us crushed in our condemnation, running from you. And indeed, as it describes throughout the scriptures, we were indeed your enemies. And yet for your enemies, you came and allowed your enemies to judge you. And you allowed us, your enemies, to put you on a cross. And you allowed us, your enemies, to put nails into your hands. And you allowed us, your enemies, to propitiate, to push our, to impute our guilt upon you. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this table that reminds us of that day. That reminds us that when you were condemned, it was real. That your body was really broken for us to take the wrath of God. That your blood was really shed to wash us clean so that we might know that we are clean before you. That our record is righteous before you so that on one day when we stand before you in the second judgment day, there will be nothing left for us but acceptance and joy and welcome and the proclamation of innocence. Lord, I pray that we would be, be a people who bask in that. So we set aside these simple elements, this bread and this cup, and we ask that you would convince our hearts that where, Lord, our, our hardened hearts, where the evil one would love to shout in our ear, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. This is what you're worthy of. That we would take these tangible elements and hear from God the Father, you are free. You are free. You are free. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.